American Majority. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org. This is Ned Ryan, and welcome to Episode 2, Arrival in the New World. As I mentioned in the previous podcast, it is almost impossible to understand the American Revolution by simply beginning several years before the Declaration of Independence. The seeds of independence were sown in the colonies at their very founding. The American people didn't just suddenly start discussing freedom and liberty in the 1760s. They'd been experiencing freedom and liberty as a virtually self-governing people with their own legislatures and duly elected officials almost from the very time of the settling of the colonies. Now, prior to 1600, the English had tried several times to colonize what we now know as the Eastern Seaboard, with the most famous being Sir Walter Raleigh's multiple attempts. His last, the Lost Colony of Roanoke, which ended in complete disaster with the disappearance of all the colonists, is still one of the greatest mysteries in American history. Almost 20 years later, and just north of where the colony of Roanoke had been attempted on North Carolina's Outer Banks, the English tried again at Jamestown, in present-day southern Virginia. In 1607, 105 adventurers looking for gold, and with financial backing from the London Company, were able to gain a foothold on the eastern seaboard, and they named the territory Virginia, after the Virgin Queen Elizabeth I. However, only 32 of those original settlers survived the first winter in North America, and they only survived because the local Indians took pity upon them and gave them food. New ships with supplies and colonists came in the spring of 1608, but again during the winter of 1608 and 09, most of the colonists died again, and by the spring of 1609, the colony was on tenuous footing. Captain John Smith, who by this time was the leader of the colony, led the colony through this tumultuous period, working to prioritize the planting of corn and other crops instead of searching for gold, commanding that those who did not work would not eat. But under Smith, tensions between the Indians and the colonists devolved, and in the fall of 1609, there was now war between the Powhatan Indians and the colonists. Smith was actually badly burned on his leg by exploding gunpowder during one of the skirmishes, and returned to England in October of 1609. By the spring of 1610, the colonists were ready to pack it in and return to England as well. But as they readied themselves to leave with the next ships that came, Lord Thomas Delaware, yes, Delaware was named after him, arrived with new supplies and more settlers and flat out told those readying to leave, I will not take you back to England. Delaware took command of the colony, and as they were still fighting between the Indians and colonists, and as a veteran of English campaigns against the Irish, Delaware employed what were known as Irish tactics against the Indians. The colonists raided villages, burned houses, torched cornfields, and stole provisions. These tactics, identical to those used and practiced by the Powhatan Indians, proved effective. Delaware was appointed governor for life and captain general of Virginia, and having put things in order and the colony on stable footing, he left for England in 1611. Now started as a corporate, privately owned colony by the London Company, Virginia would become the first and oldest royal colony coming under the crown's authority in 1624. In 1620, Hundreds of miles to the north of Jamestown, religious dissenters known as pilgrims, fleeing religious persecution in England, and instead of seeking fortune like the settlers of Jamestown, they had come seeking a place to worship as their consciences saw fit. Actually, 13 years before, the Plymouth Company, which was the counterpart to the London Company, which had settled Jamestown, 
had tried to establish the Sagadahawk colony in 1607 in present-day Maine, but the experience proved untenable for the 120 settlers, and after a year, the surviving settlers returned to England. In 1620, the Plymouth Company tried again, this time, however, with religious dissenters, and in November of 1620, the Mayflower, carrying 100 pilgrims, arrived in the New World. The Mayflower's original destination had been the mouth of the Hudson River, near present-day New York City, but the ship was blown off course during its 68-day journey and ended up near Cape Cod. As it was winter when they arrived, the pilgrims chose to stay on the Mayflower until March of 1621, at which time they finally disembarked. Now, only 300 Puritans and pilgrims would actually inhabit the colony between 1620 and 1629, scattered across various settlements. It wasn't until 1629 and into the early 1630s when the population of the colony began to explode, with the great migration of the Puritans from England, with waves of hundreds coming to Massachusetts at any given time. Plymouth would eventually become part of Massachusetts colony, and in 1691, Massachusetts officially became a royal colony. In 1623, the land to the north of Massachusetts was settled by English fishermen, and eventually named New Hampshire, after the southern English county of Hampshire. A Scotsman by the name of John Thompson founded a village at Little Harbor, and several others followed, with settlements cropping up at Dover, Portsmouth, and Exeter. But between 1623 and 1679, New Hampshire was not its own colony. Massachusetts claimed the territory of New Hampshire, and instead of fighting it, the people of New Hampshire agreed to come under Massachusetts' jurisdiction, until King Charles II decreed that New Hampshire and Massachusetts should be separate colonies. He reversed himself in 1686, but in 1691, Massachusetts and New Hampshire became separate royal colonies. The same year as New Hampshire began to be settled, the area we now know as New Jersey began to be colonized by the Dutch, who actually settled the New Jersey area before New York, and they named this territory the New Netherlands. Sir Henry Hudson had explored the New Jersey area in 1609, but it wasn't until the Dutch and the Swedes settled there that any real attempts at colonization were made. The Dutch were the first to settle on the land in 1623, but the Swedes followed roughly 15 years later and named their new territory, to the south of the Dutch, New Sweden. In 1655, the Dutch decided they'd had enough of the Swedes meddling in their territory, and they took over New Sweden by force. But in 1664, with the fall of New Amsterdam to the English, all Dutch holdings between Virginia and New England became the holdings of the Duke of York. Now, the Duke of York means nothing to you unless you realize that the Duke was the brother of King Charles II, and the man who would become the future King James II. James, then the Duke of York, made a proprietary grant to Sir George Carteret and Lord Berkeley because of their loyalty to Charles and James during the English Civil War. The land granted to the men was between the Hudson and the Delaware Rivers, and Sir Carteret and Lord Berkeley promptly named the new grant New Jersey, which was named for the Isle of Jersey, of which Carteret was the governor. The men intended to profit from the real estate sales of their new holdings, granting land holdings to new settlers in return for annual fees known as quit rents. They also enticed the new settlers with promises of religious freedom, passing a document known as the Concession and Agreement. But things didn't quite turn out as Berkeley and Cataract hoped. It was difficult to collect revenue from the quit rents, and so in 1673, Berkeley sold his share of the colony to the Quakers. 
The colony was then split into East and West Jersey for nearly 30 years, until 1702, when under the reign of Queen Anne, the two Jerseys were once again reunited and New Jersey became a royal colony. New York's history is somewhat similar to New Jersey's, being settled a year after New Jersey. The Dutch called New York New Amsterdam. And if all the new this or that's are getting confusing or annoying, don't blame me. Blame the people whose originality limited them to only applying new to the name of an old place in a new land. But I digress. The Dutch West India Company had begun exploring the New York area in 1614, but no real settlement began until 1624, when Dutch settlers arrived on Governor's Island. In 1626, Peter Minuet and other Dutch settlers bought Manhattan Island from the local Indians for 60 guilders, or about $24 worth of goods, and established a fort and a town on the island that became known as New Amsterdam. In 1647, Peter Stuyvesant became the governor-director of New Amsterdam, and his accomplishments as director general included a great expansion of the settlement beyond the southern tip of Manhattan. Among the projects built by Stuyvesant were the protective wall on Wall Street and the canal that became Broad Street and Broadway. But in 1664, King Charles II decided that his brother, James, the Duke of York, should have the land between Virginia and New England, and so the Duke sent four ships and 450 soldiers to seize all that land. In September of 1664, Stuyvesant surrendered to the British, and though the Dutch would struggle with the British until 1674 over control of some of the parts of that territory, for all intents and purposes, the Dutch control over the eastern seaboard territories in America was over. Ten years after New York began to be settled, colonists began arriving in the Maryland region in 1634. Now, in 1632, George Calvert, 1st Lord Baltimore, had applied to King Charles I for a royal charter for what was to become the province of Maryland. But Calvert died the spring of that year, and the charter for the Maryland colony was granted to his son, Cecilius Calvert, 2nd Baron of Baltimore, on June 30, 1632. Some believe that this was compensation for his father's having been stripped of his title of Secretary of State in 1625 after announcing his Roman Catholicism. Named for Charles I's wife, Henrietta Maria, Maryland became a haven for Roman Catholics on the eastern seaboard. It was also, ironically, one of the destinations of choice for the British government to export tens of thousands of convicted criminals, clearing Great Britain of the criminals and landing them thousands of miles away on the shores of the New World. In a bit of a side note, but a fascinating one or else I wouldn't touch on it, Maryland issued the Maryland Toleration Act in 1649, which was one of the first laws that explicitly defined tolerance for all sects of Christianity, and it is considered a precursor to our First Amendment. Now, after Virginia established Anglicanism as the state religion in that colony, numerous Puritans migrated from Virginia to Maryland, and the predominantly Catholic government gave them land for a settlement called Providence, which is the site of modern-day Annapolis. However, in 1650, to show their gratefulness, the Puritans revolted against the Maryland government and set up a new government which suspended the Toleration Act, and as one historian wrote, the Puritans basically tolerated everybody except Catholics, Episcopalians, and anybody who disagreed with them. After five years, in March of 1655, Cecil Calvert sent an army under Governor William Stone to put down this revolt. 
Now, near what is now Annapolis, Stone and his Roman Catholic army were decisively defeated by a Puritan army in the Battle of the Severn. The Puritan revolt lasted until 1658, when the Calvert family regained control and reenacted the Toleration Act, which again allowed all sects of Christianity freedom in the colony of Maryland. In 1636, Connecticut was founded by the Puritan Thomas Hooker, who had been expelled from Massachusetts by the Puritans in power because they did not approve of some of Hooker's ideas. Hooker had actually been forced to flee from England to Holland and from there had emigrated to Massachusetts. Now, in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, Hooker became the pastor of the first parish of Newtown, which is now Cambridge. His parish became known as Mr. Hooker's Company, but rather quickly, becoming discontented with the suppression of Puritan suffrage and at odds with the colony leadership, Hooker led a group of about 100 people out of Massachusetts and founded Hartford, Connecticut, which led to the founding of the Connecticut Colony. Hooker would eventually help draft the Fundamental Orders of Connecticut in 1639, which is considered by some historians the first written constitution in the Western tradition. Join me next time as I discuss the founding of the last of the original 13 colonies, from Rhode Island to Georgia. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org and is written by Ned Ryan and Eric Josephson and recorded by Ned Ryan. If you enjoy this podcast on American history, be sure to check out the History of the Constitutional Convention by Ned Ryan at AmericanMajority.org or on iTunes.